This week on BSD Now, we report from virtual FreeBSD Dev Summit 2021. Another promising release by FreeBSD-based Hello System is what we're looking at. We tell you about GearBSD, and the OpenBGPD release is out. Uh, let's encrypt for an OpenBSD. FreeBSD 13 on the Panasonic Let's Note, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 408, FreeBSD Dev Summit 2021. This was recorded on the 16th of June 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now because even paranoids need backups. Hello, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to our fresh episode of this week. And uh, at least Alan is live back from last week's FreeBSD Dev Summit, the virtual one, but nevertheless, I hear good things about it. So let's dive right into the Clara Systems article. Yeah, uh, so I did a little recap of each of the sessions uh, that I attended, uh, and I figured we could talk a little bit about some of them. Uh, so the first one uh, was called Camcorder uh, by Werner Losch. So Cam is uh, part of the storage subsystem in FreeBSD. Uh, it was, I think, originally a specification from the, the SCSI working group. Uh, of like all storage and it was called the common access model it was a way that all operating systems could interrupt with SCSI uh, turns out not many operating systems actually implemented them but FreeBSD did and so we have this uh, system called CAM that's how we talk to our storage um, but when you're trying to figure out why storage isn't working how you would like especially now that storage is a lot faster uh, it can be hard to trace it you know, even uh, D-Trace, you can have a problem of, well, D-Trace works, but it doesn't work early enough in boot for what they were trying to figure out. Or, you know, you just can't filter down to the the level of detail that you want. Uh, so Warner came up with Camcorder, which is a pun based on the what those little handheld uh, mini cams used to be called in the U.S. Uh, anyway, what it allows you to do is get TCP dump-like functionality uh, on the cam storage subsystem. So that provides both the ability to, um, you know, filter and capture at high speed, uh, but also to be able to analyze in more graphical tools possibly after and actually you know, deconstruct what you're getting. Uh, so it's not like just TCP dump or so in the. Yeah, so yeah. It, it actually uses BPF similar to TCP dump uh, and basically works kind of the same way that uh, there's already a, a USB dump. Thing that allows you to dump the packets on the USB protocol, and this basically does it for the CAM protocol, and allows you to you know capture to a file and then take it and analyze it in an analyzer and so on. Cool. Uh, but provides very interesting ways uh, to debug your storage, uh, and so it's very interesting. And it you know it gets the whole CCV, the whole CAM control block, not just the data that's going back and forth. So you can actually see what CAM is doing as part of it, rather than necessarily just looking at all the data that's going back and forth on the disk is like, well, I don't need to look at the data. I want to know why it's doing that or how it got to this point or whatever. That's very useful, I'm sure, for driver development yeah. and fixing bugs in there. The second session was IPv6 uh, by Hiroki Seto. Uh, so IPv6 has been in FreeBSD for over 20 years now, um, but adoption is finally kind of taking off. And so the goal of this session was to gather information about 
uh, how various organizations actually use IPv6 and their experience with it and ways that we could improve that experience on FreeBSD. So, you know, the way that you configure IPv6, what types of configurations are common, uh, you know, what things should become default maybe, the fact that there's no DHCP v6 client built into base, uh, and just the lack, uh, you know, how certain programs built into FreeBSD don't have support for listening on the link local addresses that have like the percent interface name mm. as part of the, the link localness uh, and a bunch of things like that. So it was just trying to gather feedback on, you know, what are, what are your pain points with IPv6 and how can we make that better on FreeBSD? Okay, at least we have a combined uh, ping command now. Yes, that was a, a long desired thing. Uh, the next session was about IFLIB uh, by... Sai Rajesh Talamaru Raju, um, who works at NetApp. And he presented about his team's experience working with IFLIB, which is FreeBSD's framework for making the writing of device drivers easier. Basically, it provides common functionality and idioms that you need in, a, in almost every network driver as a library. And the aim is to make writing drivers easier and less error prone, as you don't have you know, each manufacturer re-implementing some common stuff in a slightly different way and you know, avoiding... Uh, having them re-implement the same old bugs in new network drivers and so on. But also to provide a more consistent configuration and management experience to the users, you know, so that you don't have a separate tool for each NIC. You can just have the one tool that, you know, how you set these settings on all the NICs. But between FreeBSD 11 and 12, the Intel network drivers were rewritten uh, to be based on IFLIB, and NetApp discussed their experience with porting some of their customizations that they had to the drivers in 11 to uh, the IFLIB versions, uh, including a couple of features that uh, weren't were no longer in the Intel driver in 12, such as the uh, adaptive interrupt moderation, and their work to restore that. Okay, cool. It's nice to see that uh, you know companies uh, use this to provide more drivers or better drivers. Uh, and then the FreeBSD core team had their session. Um, they talked about some of the things they've been working on since they took office in the summer of last year. Uh, including the expansion of SPDX license tagging, um, you know, a, a bunch of members of core working to upstream all the improvements to the BSD user feature of QMU, uh, so that that'll be available by default and so on, and you know, avoid the project having to carry patches all the time. Uh, and they also spent a little bit of time talking about recruiting new members for various FreeBSD teams or other things those teams needed, like the release engineering team was asking for more help with certain types of testing. Uh, the cluster admin team asking developers, you know, make sure you clean up after yourself on the on the universe machines and so on. Uh, and if you're going to ask cluster admin to manage hardware for you in the cluster and, you know, your fancy new architecture, uh, make sure it's ready for it. <laughs> uh, we had lots of fun with some uh, pre-production machines there. Uh, and then sec team, port manager and the documentation and CI teams also presented basically what they're looking for. Uh, then the core team spent the rest of the time answering questions, including one of the questions being, you know, what does each member of core have as their maybe top three things they'd like to accomplish before their term is up? Oh, yeah. I remember us getting that same question when we were on core. <laughs> yes. And then to cap off the end of day one, uh, Kirk McCusick uh, spent 90 minutes regaling the audience with stories from the early days of BSD. There had been a little poll to try to decide which of the three topics we would cover, the, the AT&T USL lawsuit, the TCP IP wars, or just the early days of BSD. Um, and 
we had enough time, we kind of smushed two of those together and, and made everybody quite happy. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, if you've ever been to a Kirk McCusick talk or watched one on YouTube, you can kind of see this is not a boring lecture. This is entertaining from start to finish. Yes. Well, you know, you know it's going to be good when it starts with the story of where the notes for this story came from. <laughs> You know, it's like a long train trip across Australia and he wrote out all the things that happened. <laughs> then to start off day two, uh, Inar from the Icelandic DNS registry uh, gave a talk about ISNIC and how they use FreeBSD and have for the last 20 years and talked a bit about their stack using, you know, bind and unbound and open DNSSEC and uh, Apache that they're looking to replace with Nginx and PHP and Java and Postgres and so on. And basically all the things they do with FreeBSD and then a couple of things that they don't and, you know, which one of those they'd like to actually get moved over to FreeBSD and so on. Ah, nice. Always nice to see talks from vendors, especially people you didn't know were running FreeBSD and in turn have been doing it for 20 years. Um, and, you know, a lot of the Internet's core infrastructure turns out to run on some kind of BSD. Yep, it's there. It's sometimes not very visible or not, like, immediately, but... It's there and it's providing day-to-day -day services without having uh, to get much, much maintenance. Exactly. Uh, then I hosted uh, a session on the FreeBSD boot code, uh, including both the legacy bootstrap and bootloader, as well as the EFI loader. Uh, discussion focused on the need for a modern updating mechanism. You know, starting with FreeBSD 13, the ESP partition is mounted by default, which makes it easier to update. But... You know, that's still a manual process uh, and a bit more involved than, than the old way. Uh, it's better and supports multi-boot better and so on, but uh, there's still a lack of, of clear documentation there. Uh, but we also covered design goals uh, for a fail-safe update mechanism, a way to actually um, make sure that if you do update your boot code and something goes wrong, you're not left in a state where it's like, well... Go to some other computer, make a FreeBSD rescue stick, and come back and then perform some voodoo to get your system to work again. Yeah, the dreaded uh, bootloader prompt or the, you know, mount root prompt even. Yes, like I, I think you had uh, particular problems with this on one of your machines where I think you did the common mistake of overwriting the EFI boot code with the legacy boot code files or something, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I probably also did the, the reverse, like writing the EFI stuff to the um, legacy yeah. partition. So yeah, and it could happen. one of the culprits for that was the uh, message that ZFS used to give when you did zpool upgrade or, Z, uh, or added a new disk to a pool. It was like, hey, you need to update your boot code. Here's an example of how to do it. Except for the example would tell you how to install legacy boot code. But if your system booted EFI, the slot it told you to put it in would overwrite your EFI boot code and whoops. <laughs> and yeah, if, that's would, if that would be a bit more robust or depends on which partitions you have, then I think most of the problems for users will go yeah, away. Yeah, so as part of the switch to OpenZFS upstream in 13, those messages were lost. I think kind of accidentally, but it wasn't necessarily a bad thing because I think they did more harm than good. Uh, but... We talked about we want to restore that, and maybe instead of giving you a command, it'll give you a URL to some documentation on how to figure out which of the four different ways of updating is the one that's right for your machine, or you know how to find what uh, partition your boot code is actually in. So yeah, this sp spawned a working group, and they're coming up with solutions. Well, so uh, and then the other thing we talked talk. about was boot performance uh, and trying to improve that based on Colin's work to 
um, profile the boot on AWS. And also Mitchell Horn's been doing some work to bring in a boot tracing feature from NetApp. So yeah, in addition to discussing the future direction of the boot code and ways we could improve and expand our existing testing in CI, uh, the session spawned a working group that is going to kind of document the current state and design of each of those different boot codes uh, and try to build a requirements document so that someone who's relatively new to FreeBSD but understands the concepts would be able to pick this up and do it. So basically, if, you know, the amount of work involved in some of the things we'd like to do to make the failsafe boot code is, you know, a GSOC acceptable amount of work. The problem is you first need to understand a bunch of other bits. So we can create some documentation around that so someone can read, uh, you know, these couple of pages and understand where the, how the pieces fit together and, you know, which files you edit to change which parts of that process. Uh, then it becomes much easier for someone who's not one of the five or six people that normally work on the boot code to be able to work on this. Yeah, excellent. And so we want to have that documentation and we're motivated by the fact that we don't want to do this work. We want someone else to. So we want to make it as easy as possible for them to do that. <laughs> it turns out having documentation helps with that. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I look forward to that. Yep. Uh, the next up session was uh, Warner Losh's session on brainstorming... Uh, workflows and basically working on the Git uh, management stuff. So yeah, Warner uh, presented an update on the workflows, you know, basically the outcome of converting to Git and now what we want to do next. So the, the Git working group that uh, decided how and when and so on we would uh, migrate to Git has now finished its mandate. Uh, they had their last meeting a couple of weeks ago uh, and the conversion to Git is now complete. Next up is the workflow uh, working group uh, which is going to stand up and figure out how, now that we're using Git, that we can make uh, it easier for people to contribute. Whether that's uh, setting up some kind of system to allow pull requests uh, or what. You know, and uh, recently Warner's gone through it and cleaned up a lot of the pull requests uh, on the FreeBSD GitHub uh, and documented how to do that, but noticed that there's more steps than there really needs to be in that. And so a lot of Warner's talk was about how to figure out how to make this take less time, not just for outside contributors. You know, we want to keep the, the process low friction for people who aren't part of FreeBSD, but want to contribute a fix. Because, you know, I think we've all, you know, found a problem uh, in an open source project. Maybe it was a relatively small fix uh, and then tried to contribute it. And eventually just when the mountain gets too tall, you just decide not to bother climbing it and you just drop what you're doing and go back to something else. Um, anyway, um, but also that applies to the project side of it. Like in particular, um, you know, if there's a PR or a review that looks interesting, uh, I'd be happy to work on it. But, you know, I only have 30 minutes before I have to go for dinner or something else. Um, and if I can get it done in that time, great. But if it's going to take more time than that, then maybe it's never going to get done. Uh, and how we can reduce that friction. So, you know, Werner's looking at ways to make it easier to uh, take incoming patches and get it done because it will solve the bigger problem that FreeBSD had is not nobody's contributing to FreeBSD, it's that people contribute to BSD and it sits in the bug tracker or the review system for a long time and never gets actioned. Uh, or by the time it does, the original submitter is you know, not thinking about that item anymore and how we can improve that. Sure, yeah, this is good for developers uh, and for people who contribute outside work, yeah. 
Very good. Yep. Uh, and then uh, Mitchell Horn uh, gave a talk about Risk Five uh, and what was involved there. Um, both, you know, what is Risk Five and where is it going, but also how it relates to FreeBSD and how FreeBSD is doing on Risk Five. Uh, and then there was the 14.0 planning session, uh, which is the typical, you know, have need want session that uh, is popular, a mainstay of uh, FreeBSD developer summits. Um, you know, developers and vendors that use FreeBSD come together and kind of talk about, you know, here's some code I have that I want to contribute and how do we figure out how to get that upstream? Uh, here's some stuff that I need. So I will be, you know, our company will be working on this in the next six months or, you know, we're looking for someone to help us with this or whatever. And then want is like, hey, would anybody else be interested in having this feature uh, and kind of figuring out which things fall into each of those categories? Uh, but John Baldwin put in a bunch of extra effort this year to uh, do a better job of tracking our progress. Um, you know, in previous years, when we had these sessions for FreeBSD 11 and 12, one of the complaints was um, that, you know, there wasn't enough follow through. And so we made this giant list, but whatever happened to it by the time we got to the next one. And so John's been working on uh, keeping continuity with these and, you know, Using uh, Markdown note-taking stuff instead of writing on a chalkboard has helped a lot with that because uh, they can get committed and then diffed over time. Uh, but, you know, spending the first little bit of the session going through what we said last time and marking up, oh, this these are the ones that actually got finished. Uh, and that, I think, makes everyone feel like adding things to that list isn't just adding to an endless wish list. It's actually, you know, a good chunk of these things actually got done last time. Yeah, so we can remove them and or yep. make a check mark next to it. Uh, and then there was uh, the work in progress sessions. So there's a bunch of people talked about what they've been working on. Uh, Kevin Boland's been working on iflib stuff. Uh, Arkash Sharma has been working on OCSSD, which is um, a software flash translation layer for using raw flash and and getting you know, the where leveling code into the operating system instead of uh, in the hardware. Um, Charlie Lee talked about GNU Radio. Um, the FreeBSD Foundation interns, Cyril and Yang, uh, talked about their projects, which is uh, RunJ experiments, which is a OCI compatible uh, jail framework and uh, an installer prototype that uses a web browser uh, to do the graphics. And then PF, uh, sorry, Christoph talked about his work on PF, uh, and then Kib talked about his work with the uh, AMD64 boot to kernel handoff and EFI runtime services and uh, kernel ASLR. And then Ed provided an update on the work the foundation's been sponsoring to update LLDB. No, seems like a nice uh, overall uh, put together Dev Summit. So was there also a hallway track? Uh, yes, so there was a hallway track between sessions. It was really not active during the sessions. Uh, but it also ran after the, the end of each day uh, and people hung out and, for a bit and it was fun. And then there was day three. Uh, so day three, Konstantin uh, Belisov uh, talked about the AMD 64 mode switching. Uh, I missed that one. It was too early in the morning for me that day. Uh, then Vincent uh, Millam uh, gave a talk about ARM 64 virtualization. That's basically running FreeBSD ARM 64 inside of uh, ESXi or Parallels ARM virtualization. Uh, ben Matt Aarons talked about RAID Z expansion. Uh, so that's the project the foundation's been sponsored for about four years. It's basically the most requested RAID uh, ZFS feature ever. Uh, and 
the official pull request to merge it into OpenZFS was opened uh, that morning. Um, so with this, you'd be able to take an existing uh, pool that is made up of RAID Zs and be able to add one extra disk to an existing RAID Z, which was before not possible. So, you know, if you had a, a six disk pool before as one RAID Z, if you wanted to add more space, the only way to do it was add another whole RAID Z, which is generally you're looking at another whole six disks. Uh, this would just let you add the seventh disk to the existing uh, RAID Z, uh, and that means uh, you get the extra space. But it's a little complicated under the hood, and the talk gets into how that works and you know why it took so long to get it right. Cool. Uh, then uh, Mark Johnston uh, talked about his developer workflows. So just a preview of how he does his FreeBSD development and some of the tools and, and setups he has, uh, which is very enlightening. I, you know, I think uh, a few other people have done similar things. I know Tom Jones has done one in the past about his dev setup. It was just a blog post, but um, you know, we'd like to get that stuff to be as easy as possible for everyone so that nobody's doing a bunch of manual work that can be automated and that you know, when developers have time to work on FreeBSD that we make the most out of that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes you develop or find a tool from a developer that you didn't know before and it makes your life so much easier. Yeah, like for example, uh, Mark wrote a, uh, an extension to Git uh, to integrate with Arc, the tool for Fabricator. Um, and so there's, ah, nice. you know, as part of the FreeBSD repo, there's now a little tool that adds an extra Git command that makes it easier to post reviews, especially, you know, with Git, your review might actually be four separate commits and you actually want to post those as four separate reviews, but all linked together so that people see that, all right, there's this commit. And then the second one depends on that first one. You have to commit it in this order for it to work and so on. Mm. Oh yeah, that's useful. Yep. And then Ed hosted a desktop and distro panel. So we got uh, together developers from GhostBSD and Hello Systems and, uh, um, menu from the graphics driver team and so on and talked about uh where desktops and and how freebsd is doing on a desktop and what's needed there uh and then uh peter green and john baldwin held a beehive session they talked about the current status of a bunch of work in beehive i think uh, andrew turner also jumped in and talked a bit about the beehive on arm uh so that was good and then there was a quick closing session uh, where the foundation uh, gave an award to John Baldwin for his help uh, organizing Dev Summits. He's been doing that for many years, but you know the last two have been especially challenging, being online, which is not something we had ever done before. Uh, and John managed all that and and basically emceed all three days of uh, the developer summit here, and so that was great. And then Michael W. Lucas hosted a trivia contest. Uh, with some easy and some very difficult questions. Um, and in the last couple of questions, uh, Hiroki managed to surpass me and I lost by 50 points out of like 12,000 points. Oh, so it's literally just if I clicked <laughs> a little faster on one of those earlier answers, I might have <laughs> stuck in the loop. But it didn't help that, you know, Michael Lucas was uh, booing me the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> but the trivia contest was uh, like a good, fun way to to end the the dev summit, uh, and that was done with Kahoot. And uh, so I I'm sure that all tracks back to being your fault. Yeah, I guess it was kind of carried over from the well, one you did time what, when I did was it. Twenty seventeen, eighteen in Paris. When was Paris? Oh yes, that's what that was the first time I yeah, did. Yeah, when, when was that? Twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen? Yeah. 
so my shirt here says Romania was 2018. And so if we... This would have been 2017 then. Yeah. <laughs> See, we remember by the shirts. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, very good. So this catched on. Excellent. And um, yeah, overall, from what I hear, it was a great Dev Summit and people had a lot of yes. uh, interesting fun. Uh, and there's recordings of the YouTube live stream available now, uh, but they'll also get broken up um, into the individual videos and posted later on. So right now it's, you know, three separate six hour long videos of the whole day. Uh, but um, at some point those will get edited and there'll be individual videos for each talk. Probably by the time you see this, but who knows? <laughs> Just finish this episode and then you can jump on YouTube. Um, great. Very nice. So uh, up next is we have, as Alan mentioned earlier, a system called Hello System. And uh, it got a new promising release the article here says 0 0.5.0 and for the people who ask hey what is this so the hello system is a freebsd based lightweight operating system designed from the ground up and uh, the operating system with freebsd at its core provides a real open alternative to the macOS and its users and for the people who click the link in our show notes you can see a couple of screenshots and that really resembles the early mac interfaces from the aqua times people remember probably so that's what they are doing and it's not completely the same but it's uh, has a close resemblance to it so ideas and principles mainly give freebsd users an alternative to the no lockdown environment like unlike macOS these days that means you get any application software you want in hello system uh, that too includes all linux applications because freebsd already has a built-in layer to run linux applications and it is worth mentioning that you can keep using your older hardware for this operating system without fear of non-upgradable status. Oh yeah, an impressive operating system, they write there. And so, however, this is fairly new. Uh, things are still being worked on, which is why there's a zero in front of the release number. So what's new in this 0 0.50? So this is based on stable FreeBSD 12.2 and provides updates to wireless networking and much new specific hardware support they say here uh, the primary window manager is openbox 3.4 which is a bit older version right now and they just put in the right themes and uh, icons and colors and stuff the main top panel global system menu is now updated automatically when the system is modified with applications or directories uh, the change log here says uh, or it's evident from there that the file manager filer sees most of the updates in this release of updates and uh, they list the updates in Filer uh, as initial spatial mode options for Filer, a go-to menu in Filer, like Command-Shift-G, it's probably similar to the same hotkeys uh, on the Mac. Uh, they go up to the parent folder. Ah, yes, so these are the general control commands like uh, shortcuts. Context menus in Filer for opening text files and folders as root. Oh, that's useful. Filer now shows volumes on the desktop like how loud loudspeakers are blaring. Uh, Filer now shows the correct names for volumes, adjusted icon grid sizes, and much more. The other updates in Open or in Hello System uh, include new app QHex edit and Android file transfer utilities is introduced. Uh, an updated init GFX, which has more GPUs, like the AMD Radeon HDs. And um, yeah, these were found in 2011 Max. Uh, is, uh, so these might be now supported. A double click on the title bar of any application to hide the main window and shows only the title bar. 
And it's possible to save and persist across reboots, a custom keyboard preference uh, for a placeholder.app bundle. And so these are automatically created for applications installed with PKG. Audio volume can now be set from the global menu bar. Quick click is always useful. So uh, to get this, you uh, they provide a download link. The project is hosted on GitHub at the moment, and there's a 64-bit ISO file waiting for you to try it out. They close their notes with, this is one of the interesting FreeBSD operating systems that they were following very closely. A promising project indeed with a stable alternative to Linux and macOS. Request to you to contribute to the project in any capacity in GitHub. Very nice. So now it's time for the news roundup this week, and we have something new for you, which is Gear BSD. No, not Richard Gear BSD. This is ER Gear. Yeah. Uh, so this is a post over on the Data Swamp from Celine. It says, "I love NixOS and Grix uh, for their easy system configuration and easy jumping from one machine to another uh, by using your configuration file." Uh, to the same extent, I want to make it possible to do that on OpenBSD with a collection of parameterized Rex modules, allowing you to configure your system piece by piece from templates uh, that you feed with variables. So let me introduce you to GearBSD, my project to extend OpenBSD like that. And so they have a link to their GitLab page. So to use it, you need to basically clone the GearBSD repo using Git, and uh, you will need to install Rex, so p5-rex, uh, then cd into a directory like openbsd slash pf, which is the only module that exists as they were writing this. Edit the rex file to change the variables you want and run do as rex configure, uh, and that will apply those changes. And they have a ASCII cinema uh, video of that happening. Um, so the pf module has a few variables like TCP ports and UDP ports where you list the ports or ranges that you want to allow. If no ports are on the list, then the pass rule for the protocol won't even be there. Uh, if you want to enable NAT on EM0 on for your WG0 interface, then set NAT to 1 and NAT from interface to, w, to WG0 and NAT to interface to EM0, and the module will take care of everything else for you. Uh, even enabling this uh, sysctl for um, IP forwarding so that uh, packets will pass between those interfaces in order to get NAT. They say this is only a start, uh, but I want to work hard on it to make OpenBSD more accessible uh, for everyone and uh, mm -hmm. make it easier to use and more pleasant. And staying on the OpenBSD track here, we have OpenBGPD, the Open Border Gateway Protocol Daemon 7.0 being released uh, over at bsdsec.net, which provides that simple BSD security advisories and announcements. And this is the announcement. Um, we have released OpenBGPD 7.0, which will be arriving in the OpenBGP directory of your local OpenBSD mirror soon. I guess by the time you listen to this, it's out. This release includes the following changes to the previous release. Stop processing, queued updates when the max-prefix limit was reached, improved negotiation of route refresh, graceful restart, and multi-protocol capabilities, correctly track RDE, evaluate all and export settings during the reload. Properly withdraw prefixes when RDE evaluate all is used. Uh, fix MRT handling on initial startup for message dump types. Fix and use non-blocking connect for RTR sessions. And fully implement RFC 6286 by checking for BGP ID collisions. All right. Uh, they also adjust the 4-byte AS number. Uh, handling to RFC 6793 by changing the error behavior from prefix withdraw to attribute discard. 
and in BGP CTL, the uh, com command interface, you print. They print out both the send neighbor capabilities and the negotiated capabilities for a session, so that you can compare them or just see that they are uh, established. Print timestamps both as formatted in a pure time in seconds, filled in various JSON objects because JSON is everywhere now. OpenBGP. PD Portable is known to compile and run on FreeBSD and Linux distributions Alpine, Debian, Fedora, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, or CentOS, as well as Ubuntu. It is their hope uh, that packagers take interest and help adopt OpenBGPD style portable uh, or that one to more distributions. They welcome feedback and improvements from the broader community and they thank all of the contributors who helped make this release possible. Uh, the next one we have is from Chris Cyberman, which is uh, simple use of Let's Encrypt on OpenBSD is pleasantly straightforward. Uh, so Chris says, uh, for reasons beyond the scope of this entry, I recently needed to get a Let's Encrypt uh, TLS certificate for testing on an OpenBSD machine, which isn't something I've done before. On a relatively modern OpenBSD like 6.8, it was pleasantly straightforward and easy with the program necessary already installed uh, as part of the full base install, which is what we normally do on their OpenBSD machines since a full install is not that big anyway. OpenBSD's standard Let's Encrypt client is called acme-client, which has to be configured through etc acme-client.conf and then invoked as acme-client-v the hostname to start the process of getting your TLS certificate. As the OpenBSD documentation tells you, a sample acme-client.conf uh, is available in etc examples, uh, and it's easy to edit into shape to list the names you want uh, for your Let's Encrypt certificates. I opted to add the optional contact option to the Let's Encrypt authority uh, in my acme.conf or acmeclient.conf. Although in retrospect, it's pointless for a test server where I don't care if the certificate expires after I'm done. In the OpenBSD tradition, acme-client is very minimal, unlike more uh, all-encompassing Let's Encrypt clients like certbot, uh, acmeclient doesn't do either post-renewal actions or answering of HTTP challenges. Certbot and many other heavyweight clients have their own little internal HTTP server that they'll run for you uh, for the duration of a challenge, if you ask, and that's uh, Certbot's standalone mode. So to handle HTTP side of things, the easiest approach is to turn OpenBSD's standard HTTPD server, at least temporarily. Uh, OpenBSD ships with a sample httpd.conf in etc examples, that I was able to use uh, with very few changes. Because I wanted to be able to test my new certificate, I left the HTTPS version of my host uh, in that config file, uh, although it wasn't serving anything. But you could remove it and have an HTTP server that's just uh, there to answer the Let's Encrypt challenges. Pleasantly, OpenBSD's HTTPD will start if you have uh, HTTPS site configured, but the TLS certificates are missing. This uh, lets you leave your HTTPS site configured even before you have the certificates. The default OpenBSD HTTPD.conf rejects all your HTTP traffic to the theoretical HTTPS site, which uh, nicely makes it serve nothing except for answers to Let's Encrypt's challenges. Because I was getting my Let's Encrypt TLS certificates for something other than a web server, I didn't permanently enable the HTTP server. So I had to start HTTPD more forcefully than usual using RCCTL dash f start httpd. Uh, this is unlike the Prometheus host agent package, which can be started temporarily with the uh, rcctl start node exporter before you decide to permanently enable it. This is probably uh, routine to regular OpenBSD users. Anyway, once they started httpd and Acme client, uh, it succeeded without a problem. Unlike certbot and some other clients, 
African client has no separate Let's Encrypt account registration process. It registers an account if and when necessary to get your certificate. I opted to get both the certificate, uh, domain certificate in acmeclient.conf and the default full chain. Uh, this isn't necessary since you can always manually extract each individual certificate from the full chain file, but I wasn't sure how I was going to use the certificate, so I opted to just have it do both. Since this was a quick test setup, I haven't tried to automate any of the renewals, but Acme Client man page has example cron entries and everything. You need to uh, you need a separate cron entry for every separate uh, certificate you have on the machine. Unlike Certbot, there's no way to say try to auto renew everything that exists, even though all of your certificates are listed in the acmeclient.com. So, I think that's a hint, hint. Someone go add a a flag dash a to just go through everyone in the conf and uh try to renew them ah very likely that it happens or someone sits down and does it okay so now for a panasonic let's note uh freebsd article by rubenert so he writes i was about to launch into a guide about this cute little japanese laptop before finally deciding to make a page on the freebsd wiki about it and uh, there's a link of course to it um, he also updated the laptops page and submitted another D messages to the NYC bug database. Excellent. That's how you use that one and provide as much information as possible to uh, the wider community in case someone else out there wants to run the same setup or the same hardware. The FreeBSD wiki comes up in search results sometimes, but I still think it's an underutilized and underappreciated resource. Between that and the canonical handbook, you can figure out most of how to build and maintain FreeBSD systems. So he writes, special thanks to Benedict Heuschling. Who is that guy? I hear that name very often, but never met him. Um, for accepting my application to contribute. You're welcome. And Mark Linnemann for sorting out my account. Ah, that's on the wiki. Yeah, excellent. Great that you um, yeah, provided that information. And closing, as for this laptop, I bought it in Akihabara during a trip to Asia BSDCon 2019. It already seems like such an age ago now. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, he misses the chats and beer. Yes, that's unfortunate, but it will hopefully happen again in the future in some other way or time. And it's great that you still have enough BSD batteries charged to provide this information. Great. Okay, before we go into our feedback and questions section, we should mention a sponsor for this week's episode, which is Tarsnap. Tarsnap sent me this week a nice email saying, hey, uh, your account is going to um, get closed if you don't charge up again. And that was because I added another machine to my Tarsnap backup and that, you know, increased the amount of, you know, data I had to back up and that didn't fit the actual bill. But going back, um, adding another machine was fairly easy because I, I knew how it <laughs> how it's done on one machine, so it's fairly easy to do on another. So what you do is either you create a new key for that specific machine or you reuse an existing one and um, it's stored on your system and it should stay actually there and never leave your machine or with the backup actually because that's your way back into your backup because all the backups are encrypted locally before they are backed up into the AWS cloud. And uh, there's also compression happening and deduplication, which makes your backup potentially much, much uh, smaller than the original data. And that saves you bandwidth and also, uh, you know, transfer time. And of course, also if you charge up with like five dollars only and you have like 500 gigabytes to back up that may not you know <laughs> last for long but still tarsnap is cheap 
and you can go a long way of um, backing up a lot of systems and a lot of data without uh, bankrupting yourself. So that's my my little Tarsnap story from from this week. Um, so yeah, you get information when your account is about to uh, get low on on uh, storage or on, you need to recharge. Uh, otherwise, uh, Tarsnap is straightforward. If you know how to use Tar, then it's fairly straightforward to use because it's just a couple of similar commands. Um, the design information for Tarsnap, if you want to know about how it's done and how it's set up in the background, are on the website. And there's plenty of utilities available for you from third parties or from um, yeah from Tarsnap directly. Some of the building uh, software is also available, like the script key derivation function, the Kivalu data store, and the SPIPD secure pipe daemon. So these are provided separately, but they are uh, essential parts of Tarsnap. Clients, well... Any kind of operating system is supported, whether it's a Mac, whether it's a Linux system, uh, the BSDs, of course, and the Windows subsystem for Linux, or what, what, what's it called these days? Um, the native uh, Windows uh, Bash. Well, it's not Bash, it's, it's the Windows shell. Um, that's also uh, supported. Or you can download the source code and write your own client or look for any suspicious things in there. But I'm fairly sure you won't find any of those in there because you can look at the source and be paranoid about it. Right, and, and there are bug bounties if you find something wrong. And so lots of people have spent time trying to find things. <laughs> so yeah, try it out, check it out. I'm fairly sure it will save your uh, day if you really want to get your data back um, and still hold the key. Okay, we uh, have now arrived at the feedback and questions section. And this is one of the most favorite parts of uh, the show for a lot of people we hear. And so that's why we're doing it, because it's your way of interacting with us or sending us a question that you always wanted to know. And we try to answer. So the first is Paul and uh, has a ZFS question. Hi, Alan, Benedict and Tom. Excellent. People are updating. <laughs> so uh, he has a, uh, a trusty FreeBSD server sitting in his garage and doing many things. Uh, they recently moved from old uh, MRTG to Prometheus slash Grafana slash node exports combo, mm -hmm. which gave me better visibility of how ZFS is performing. And he writes, I noticed one thing. Uh, while FRU... The, I think wait, he actually meant MFU. FRU or? MFU, yeah. Uh, the most frequently used and most recently used parts of ARC are approximately the same size. Number of hits of MRU is about 50 times higher than the than to the other one. I have more ARC misses than MRU hits. Uh, it is understandable as I expect most of the MRU is data coming from CCTV video recording, which gets written continuously, but never read. CCTV recordings are on dedicated pool. So the question is, is there a way to configure ZFS to do not waste the, MRE, the MFU data written to the CCTV pool? That memory can be better used for other things. Okay, uh, so very quickly, there's, yeah, the arc is split into two parts, the most frequently used and most recently used. And when you first start out, it's split 50-50. But then every time there's a miss, it can adjust. So... Um, for example, uh, so actually the ARC has four lists, not two. So there's the MRU and the MFU that we just talked about, but each of those two lists also has what's called a ghost list, which is when an item used to be in cache, but isn't anymore, it goes on the ghost list. Um, and that's used so that later, if you go to access a block, 
and that block isn't in the MRU or the MFU, but it's on the ghost list, then we know if, if that cache had just been a little bit bigger, that would have been a hit. And so that one of those two chunks of the arc will grow by that much and shrink the other one the corresponding amount. So every time you get a, a hit on a file that used to be in cache but isn't anymore, if it was in the most recently used cache, and you go to read it later, and it would have been in the cache if that cache was bigger but there wasn't room, uh, it's on this ghost list. So we say, okay, then let's make the frequently used cache 512 bytes smaller and the recently used cache 512 bytes bigger. And that'll just keep happening until the cache settles on the split that is most advantageous. Um, and so, you know, your, your most frequently used uh, having a much higher hit counter is expected because you might have, you know, the same 10 files that get access once every five seconds. Uh, and so they'll get, you know, their hit counters on each of those files will go up every five seconds, but it doesn't take any more RAM. Like you're already caching those, all the frequently used files. So having the frequently used part of the cache being any bigger wouldn't do you any good because uh, there are no more frequently used files. If there were files that were, used to be in the frequently used cache but got pushed out to make room for more recently used files, then they go on that ghost list and the next time you hit them, they would cause the most frequently used cache to get bigger and to shrink the recently used cache. And it kind of just has this tug of war between the two halves of the cache until it finds where it does the best. But to answer your question, yes, um, you can. You don't even have to have a separate pool to do this. Uh, each data set in ZFS has a property called primary cache. And this controls whether those blocks get cached in the arc or not. And so if you just ZFS set primary cache equals metadata on your CCTV pool or data set, then only the metadata about the files will be stored in the cache, but the actual data blocks of the video won't. Uh, so primary cache can be set to all, which is the default, metadata, which means only the metadata, but not the actual blocks of data, or none, which is nothing. Um, it's probably still worth having the metadata for the CCTV pool in the uh, cache, just because you know, you're going to need it when you append to the videos and, and do your normal um, rotation and cycling and so on. But yeah, if you set the primary cache property on the data set to metadata, then the CCTV video won't go in the most recently you cache when it's written. And, uh, you know, that can either hold other most recently used files that aren't from the CCTV pool or mean that uh, the most frequently used cache will get a bit bigger and all your frequently used files will stay memory resident. Yep. If you want to know more about the ARC, Alan has a nice talk, ELI 5, the ZFS ARC. Yes, so that's uh, explain like that. I'm five years old. Uh, for, and it was mm. at uh, VBSDCon and FOSDEM. Uh, so there's two different videos of that out on the internet if you would like to see it. Yep. Cool. So thanks for that question. I think that's very, um, you know, user-centric mm -hmm. and uh, usage-driven. Uh, next up is Raphael with a Relic topic. Okay, here goes. Hi, guys. Thanks for a great show. Thank you. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Uh, I've been watching and listening to your show for many a year by now, and I'm also a BSD convert partly thanks to it. Excellent. Um, you keep requesting feedback, and I've had a project in mind for a long time and would greatly appreciate some input from you. Okay. Yeah. We're Eight at years a point of podcasting. Human... Jesus. Anyway. Yeah. It's... <laughs> sure. It's, uh, it's a history, definitely. And it keeps growing every week. Okay. So we're at a point in human history where able to take pictures at a moment's notice and store them indefinitely without loss at relatively low cost. However, as far as I know, there are currently no commercial solutions to let this data transcend generations. 
Thus, a lot of this data will probably be lost with time. Now, since I started listening to your show, I've become a father of two wee trolls, as we say in Norway. Excellent. Congratulations. Uh, and we have thus become more aware of my heritage. If possible, I would like to collect all pictures and videos of us and hopefully pass the task to future generations such that perhaps my grand-grand-grandchildren can get a unique glimpse into their ancestors' past, a family relic or heirloom of sorts. Hmm. There are, of course, many problems that have to be solved, and I'm not expecting you to solve everything. However, so far, perhaps biased by listening to you for so many years, I thought a good solution would be ZFS for local storage and Tarsnap for off-site backup. This would hopefully ensure that my data is safe from corruption, disk failures, floods, fire, etc., and easily transferable to new servers when the time comes. The only problem is that I have no experience with any of this and would greatly appreciate if you could give some initial pointers. Hardware. I was initially thinking of using an HPE microserver, but it has room for only four disks. Is this enough or do you have any suggestions in a similar form factor size? Note that the server might also be used for some other secondary tasks. Um, it depends how many photos and videos you have and what size hard drives you want to buy. Uh, but you know, you can get hard drives up to almost 20 terabytes a piece now. So you could fit an awful lot in four drives. Um, but you know, that's uh, most likely for your home stuff that is big enough. Although it might be more economical to uh, buy a larger number of smaller drives. But then you need a larger chassis and it takes more room and more power and so on. So in the end, that's probably a perfectly fine uh, machine for that. Yep. And you can start small and replacing disks over time without having to, you know, copy things back and forth all the time and let them resync to the higher capacity. But yeah, Alan touched a little bit on it. How should I configure the drives? Four drives in RAID Z or for one system drive plus three storage drives? Uh, I would probably say four drives in RAID Z. And possibly you could uh, mount a, uh, an SSD somewhere else, since you know the SSDs are not sensitive to vibration and so on. You can duct tape it to the case if you have to, uh, as long as it has the spare SATA port or whatever. Uh, so you can still have a separate system drive in there uh, if you want. Although, you know, if you're just using FreeBSD, you can just boot straight off the four disk grade Z, and that's fine too. Yeah, because the profile for this is definitely write once, read many times. Mm -hmm. You're not rewriting your family history pictures or photos the whole time. Um, so that's uh, a good way of uh, storing. With right. RAID Z. And you're already taking care of backing it up. So yeah, uh, a four drive RAID Z1 makes sense. Uh, you could use a RAID Z2 or mirrors. One of the advantages of using two sets of mirrors would be the flexibility of expanding two, replacing two of the drives at a time with bigger ones instead of one at a time uh, or all of them at a time, like you would have with the RAID Z and be able to get access to some extra space and, you know, if you have two sets of mirrors, you upgrade one mirror and then the other side of the same mirror with bigger drives, then you get that extra storage space immediately. With a RAID Z, you can't get the extra space until you upgraded all the drives. Um, but, you know, you only have four, so it's not that big of a deal, probably. Um, yeah. yeah. And then it's the question how you should configure ZFS. I know this is the big one, but the most important requirements are integrity and extensibility and transfer to future servers. Are datasets important here? I think I find datasets so. very helpful specifically for the requirement to be able to transfer it. Uh, being able to transfer in smaller pieces is easier. Um, you can always do a recursive transfer to do it all in one big chunk, but being able to have it broken down is useful. Um, also, just for finding stuff and so on, you might break it down by... Uh, you know, even just one data set for each year. Uh, that's, you know, that way you're not spending too much time sorting things, but also means when you want to look for something, uh, you know, it's 
if you have a general idea of what time period it's in, you don't have to search everything. Uh, for mm. ZFS configuration, they're basically the defaults just work. Um, if you're really paranoid, you can change the checksum from the default to SHA-512, but that's not that big of a deal in the end. Um, yeah, the basically out of the box is probably the easiest. The less fancy stuff you do, the less chance of having problems when you go to transfer it. Um, and yes, the nice thing with ZFS here is it makes it easy to transfer it uh, to future versions of ZFS. Uh, and so you can easily uh, keep passing this forward. You know, eventually you might have to look at dealing with um, converting the file formats. You know, right now JPEG is still fine, but you know, if you have videos from 10 years ago, they're probably encoded in a suboptimal way compared to now. And you would want to re-encode the video and you know, once a decade or something and try to keep to modern formats so that you'll be able to find software to play the video, uh, you know, 20 years from now. Yeah, especially also teach your little trolls when they get older how to use ZFS so that they can carry on your work and continue this or with their own families that they're going to start maybe one day. And so that they know how to access the archive that daddy created one day um, based on an internet show that he's listening to so <laughs> yeah it's definitely a good uh, suggestion and there's a point about um having a private cloud solution which would simplify the process of transferring the files from mobile to the server um yeah or having like an app or a browser yeah so, yeah um, next cloud something yeah, like that something like next cloud is is popular i don't have much experience with that particular part of it uh so i'm not the best person to answer but I would assume something like NextCloud would make the most sense there. Mm. Yeah, you want to have some kind of offsite solution in case something terrible happens at home and the server dies. Um, right. Well, um, but yeah, they're I've, already talking about using Tarsnap for the backup. This is for yeah, how to get right. the the photos from my phone to my home server while I'm on vacation. Oh yeah. So that if I lose my phone after taking the pictures, the pictures got backed up to or got copied to the ZFS server, which got backed up to Tarsnap, and they're still. Mm. exist right you know uh backing up your zfs servers is great it just you the files you want to protect have to be on it <laughs> <laughs> yeah in the first place yeah so i think a lot of people are doing this kind of thing and uh, they should probably reach out or maybe we find a blog post about it because i think a lot of people want to you know do exactly the same thing preserve their family history or important data this way without having to you know store it in a bank account or in a vault somewhere um, and keep it running and updating each each year or whatever events are happening so yeah very good uh, thoughts and uh yeah thank you for submitting that so last but not least is matthew with sendfile and ktls question and matthew writes hi all the discussion around sendfile and ktls in episode 400 surprised me a little ah okay the problem of using sendfile with connection encryption is familiar to me but i was expecting the solution to involve bpf is there a reason specifically TLS support was implemented and not a more general apply this arbitrary transformation function to incoming data API? Maybe KTLS is even implemented internally this way? Um, I think part of it had to do with just doing something specific uh, meant it could be tuned a bit better, specifically for this use case. Um, so in particular, the network system in FreeBSD uses concept of MBUFs, which can have uh, headers and trailers easily added to the data without having to copy the data to a new uh, chunk of memory. 
So it's basically a linked list and you can insert uh, the header and footer without having to modify the, the original data. And then, uh, you know, you can do the bulk encryption and replace that chunk with the encrypted version. Um, I don't know that much about the internals. Um, I don't know why BPF wasn't used, but I don't know that it would have worked as nicely or, or what the performance impact of that would have been. Um, I know the way they did it works really well. Um, <laughs> and that, uh, it's even working well in the opposite direction. Um, there's a testing version of NFS that can receive encrypted, uh, data. So we have basically encrypted receive file as well. Mm. You maybe want to reach out to the, uh, people who implemented that, uh, well, either uh, John Baldwin or. You haven't already, uh, the best place to start would probably be the Asia BSDCon paper from like 20. 14 or whatever that describes the original design uh, and it might explain why it was done that way. I think that original part of the API would be John Mark Gurney and Scott Long. Uh, but mm. part of the other reason uh, the KTLS stuff is done the way it is probably is that, for example, John Baldwin's work on it is about offloading it, the encryption to the NIC. So FreeBSD doesn't do the encryption if you have uh, a Chelsea or a Mellanox card that has the right features, you actually send, uh, you put the, the framing on it or whatever, and then you send it down to the NIC and the NIC does the encryption on uh, its own dedicated hardware, uh, which is faster than your CPU, mm -hmm. or at least doesn't, you know, use up your CPU. Mm -hmm. Very good. Uh, and I think that wraps up this episode. Uh, we thank you for listening as always and keep submitting feedback to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we are looking forward to doing another show next week and hopefully you're tuning in again then <laughs>